listening to Gangland Wire, hosted by former Kansas City Police Intelligence Unit Detective Gary Jenkins. Welcome, all you wiretappers out there. Back here in the studio of Gangland Wire, I've got a special guest on the phone with me. Nico, I apologize if I'm going to mess up your last name. Nico Vropiov, maybe you should introduce yourself. You, you introduce yourself, Nico. My name's Nico Vropiov, and yeah, that surname gave me a lot of hell in school. <laughs> I can imagine, I can imagine. Sometimes, I, <laughs> if you're not familiar, if I'm not familiar with the name, then I struggle with it. But moving right along, Nico has written and released a book called Dope World, which is, tell you what, it's the dope around the world. It's a narcotics business from one end of the world to the other. I see uh, titles from like from Russia with drugs to a trip through the ages, keep off the grass, chemical warfare, the pizza connection, new blood, Havana nights, planes, chains, and automobiles, the boys from Cianola, dinner at El Chapo's. Did you have dinner at El Chapo's? <laughs> Barbecue. Barbecue. All right, cool. We may, we probably ought to hear about that. That'll be pretty interesting. I got a feeling. But Nico, first of all, tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you get to where you are now with that book? So basically, I got a lot of. I was on another podcast, and I remember one guy in the in the YouTube comments. He was like, "I can't place this guy. He's always like switching between Hackney and Hollywood." And the reason is, I was born in my accent. I was born in Russia originally. It was the Soviet Union back then. But then we moved to Amer- Italy first, then America. I learned English in America off the uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and <laughs> and the animated series. So I always had kind of a slight American accent, but then we moved to Britain when I was like six or seven. And so it's just this kind of weird mix of an American-British accent. But the thing is, we didn't move to London, which is it's a very like a global city. It's a very multinational city, kind of like New York, I imagine. And we moved to a small town called Bath, which is near Bristol, which at that time, it's changed a bit now, but at that time, there weren't many foreigners there at all. So it's basically me... This one Pakistani kid and this one Iranian kid, and that's it. That was the United Nations. The rest were all like white English kids. And so I didn't really kind of fit in very well. I wouldn't say that I was like horribly bullied, but I did have a lot of self-esteem issues and like issues that I didn't really, never felt like I fit in. So that kind of got me when I was kind of an older teenager, about 17, 18. I started thinking that that's what kind of got me into the drug scene, the underground drug scene, the the rave scene, especially ecstasy. I was thinking, you know, I could go to a lot of parties, like make some new friends, kind of get over my issues like that. It kind of worked. It kind of worked because I did go to a lot of parties and I didn't make a lot of new friends. But then one day, by that point, I was already in university. But one day I very stupidly got caught. So I think you as ex-cop might appreciate this. So us criminals, we have to be lucky all the time. You, <laughs> yeah. Once. You only have, have to be lucky once, you're right. <laughs> Obviously, like, as also with, I'm not going to lie, in prison, a lot of the guys in prison, they're not the sort of Machiavellian kind of James Bond villain types. They're guys who did some pretty stupid mistakes, got caught. So that helps you a lot as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I ended up there, and I was never, even though I was a drug dealer, I was never kind of like a gangster type drug dealer. I was more like kind of like a college campus rave party on the weekends kind of guy. But if I'm honest, like the UK prison system, it's not that bad. Where I was, 
there were fights every day. But generally, as someone who's not involved in gangs, I wasn't on the receiving end of those much at all. But what did get to me was the sort of psychological isolation of being locked in a cell. I was, there's no way I could get used to that. So I had like a lot of the same, these same thoughts, just negative thoughts going round and round my head. But one outlet I had for it was writing letters to the outside. So I'd write my friends, uh, letters to a lot of my friends. And they'd be like, oh, yeah, you know, that's quite funny. That's like a funny observation on prison life. So that's kind of what got me into writing. And I thought that like once, like sometime later after I got out, I thought if they say I have talent for this, I could use my kind of turn my negative experience into a kind of positive. And I guess also write about what you know. That's what they always say. Yeah. So that's what came together eventually into my first book, Dope World. So how did you start with your research? I mean, obviously you started in the library on the internet and all that, but you've got some more personal experiences. You went out and interviewed people. How did you kind of plan this out, this book? Well, if I'm honest, I didn't really plan it much at all because I was just starting. I didn't have many, how do I say, good journalism connections. I didn't have like a big newspaper backing me up or whatever, giving me funds and networks. So I had to do a lot of Googling. I had to find out who were the right people to get in touch with in in every country. Because I couldn't just sit in village around these saloon bars, look for burly muchachos with big sombreros and, excuse me, could uh, could one of you gentlemen direct me to the nearest puppy field? Now I had to have someone to make those introductions for me. So a lot of time was spent just just Googling, like planning my route, who I'm going to meet, where I'm going to go. That took up a lot of my time. So what would be one of the most dangerous meetings that you felt like you had? Oh, there are three. One of them didn't make it into the book, but I'm hoping to save it for another one. So the first one was in Colombia. That was on a coca plantation. I didn't I didn't recommend your listeners to do this because I'm not sure I broke the law, but the guys I was with definitely were. And you don't want to be breaking the law enough. Well, I don't want to be breaking the law, period. Look where I ended up. But there is, I will say that factually, there is, there are some parts of Colombia where you can go do these sort of illegal tours, these kind of make your own cocaine tours, where they take you to coca plantation and they show you how it's done. And they give you like a little souvenir at the end. I remember actually the guy was trying to shove like loads of like little vials of cocaine in my pocket. I was going to fly the next day. So I was like, no, no, el perro, el perro, the dog, the dogs. So I just trying to give them all back to him. But that was scary as hell because I thought at any point, we were way out like about you know, half an hour. We went, on, we went on horseback. So about half an hour on horseback out of the nearest sort of big town. I'm just in the middle of the rolling countryside. I'm just looking around. There's no one there apart from this farmer, a couple of guys with machetes, and this woman who I guess was his, his girlfriend or something. Uh, I thought just at any point this army helicopter is going to land in the middle of the coca field. I'm going to run. I'm obviously going to get caught because they're trained soldiers. And then I'm going to have to make a call to my mother like, Mom, it happened again. <laughs> oh, my God, Nico. <laughs> I didn't bargain for that story. That was one hell of a story. How did you make that connection, dude? How did you? You must have known somebody that knew somebody that had maybe done that before or something because um, you may not well, want to talk about that i understand but i'm really curious about how you even i mean how is one even go about figuring out somebody to ask that somebody else that does this at that time i did that just before i put it in the book but i did before i had like the initial idea to do the to write the book but i was backpacking around uh south america with some money i saved up 
And when you're in Colombia, it's just like a thing you hear about in the around the hostels, right in the back. Oh, okay. But you have to be careful because they'll tell you to go to like the specific town and stay with like specific kind of tour guide. I guess it would be the right word here. But thing is, the the Colombian the local police are also quite aware of this. Yeah. So if you try to book some, try to stay with the wrong guy and ask them about this, you're gonna end up in probably they probably won't like. You won't end up on like banged up abroad or like some show like that, but yeah. they will probably try to get you to pay an on the spot fine, as it were. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Those on the spot fines. Pretty good. What I would be worried about would maybe become the victim of a kidnapping if they thought you had access to any family with any money or anything outside the country. Of course, you would obviously not have any money on you, but but you mm. know they do those kidnappings. Uh, in some of those places like that. Uh, they used to down in Columbia quite a little bit. That was more of a political that FARC was doing some kidnapping. Yeah, stuff. yeah. But I'd be worried about getting kidnapped, man. I don't know. I wouldn't have the courage to do that. I, I salute your courage, man, or maybe it's your stupidity. I don't know which. <laughs> Probably a bit of both. I'm <laughs> really? going gonna, gonna to lean more on the stupidity side. <laughs> well, I did a lot of stupid things when I was young, too. You weren't very old, I don't think, when you did this. How old were you? 25, 26? Yeah, well, was, uh, I did lots of crazy things, especially under the influence of alcohol back then. So <laughs> anyhow, so that's a hell of a story. Uh, Another story would be in the Philippines, where we went to, so just a basic like, context for your listeners who, who might not know, there's this new president in the Philippines called, uh, well, he's not new anymore. He's been around for a couple of years now, but the person they have now, Rodrigo Duterte, mm-hmm. this, what he calls like a, a war on drugs. Um, but it's like quite a bit more intense than well you have even in the States. He's basically got death squads going around killing anyone who's even suspected and not even proven, like even suspected of being a drug user, not even like a drug dealer, just like a drug user or a drug dealer. And most of them are not big time kingpins. Mostly it's just some guy who's living in the slums selling meth out of his shack to two or three other guys. I'm not sure how many... Because the numbers, it's kind of hard to get an accurate number with these death squad things. And, you know, they didn't release the <laughs> body count. But I think I read on Human Rights Watch or something, something up to 25,000, 30,000 30, murders, something like that, which is crazy. But anyway, yeah, we got to meet one of the death squad guys. I got to meet him through a local journalist who worked with someone I know at RT, the Russian TV network. And we, just, we went to this karaoke bar on the outskirts of Manila, uh, went around the back, went to this little room upstairs. And he was already just standing there in the middle of the room with like this blank expression on his face, black balaclava, dressed all in black, black gloves as well. I noticed he had a little backpack with a bullet was hanging off the zipper. And he sat down and at one point he got his, he got his pistol out and put it on the table and then he started whipping it around. And a couple of times like the barrel passed by, he wasn't like... <laughs> thing he was just demonstrating but the barrel passed by my face i'm like no one told me told him about my old job you know wow that's uh wow that's crazy man that's <laughs> but one thing one thing he said that was quite interesting and this wasn't just me there's bbc news they also had a similar kind of interview as well so it's not just me that like found it out as it were but he says that he worked for a general or someone in the military And that he left a lot of drug dealers and drug kingpins alone so long as they remember to pay their tax. Yeah. 
So I'm guessing that at least part of this uh, war on drugs in the Philippines, it's not so much cleaning up the streets as it is getting rid of the private competition. Interesting, interesting. I tell you what, in that drug business, as you probably have found out, corruption is just rife. When you've got that kind of money, cash money floating around, it's especially in third world countries where yeah, the yeah. law enforcement are all notoriously underpaid. Everything is just riddled with corruption from one end of the system to the other. That's uh, kind of the bad thing about narcotic business is there's so much corruption that comes along with it that poor people don't, don't have a chance. Talk about no equal justice for anybody, man. When you got those narcos uh, running everything. It's, you know, it's all about them and what they can do and the, and the money you can make. So I, I know you ran into that. You know, uh, it's kind of interesting talking about that and, and how they deal with narcotics in the Philippines, and I've read about that. He's uh, supposedly is this strong man and will just kill drug dealers. And, yeah. And in the United States, you know, we have this war on drugs, and I was a soldier in the war on drugs. I always like to say I was once a soldier in Ronnie Reagan's war on drugs. I started out under the Reagan administration, and, and uh, when they started amping a lot of a lot of money into the drug war, we got a lot of equipment and. Laws pass that would, you you can make a snitch out of anybody. You're looking at 50 years in the penitentiary, they'll write out their mother. So we had lots of tools and overtime and cars, and we'd go after drug dealers that had nice cars so we could take their cars and then have them to drive ourselves. And and it was, so that was, there's always some kind of corruption around that drug business, around that money. And that doesn't seem to have done any good. That doesn't seem like there's anything that's done any good. Mm. uh, Do you have any familiarity with Portugal where they've legalized drugs? What's the story there they haven't so much legalized as they've decriminalized which means it's not police party at all so like okay. you can still be arrested but you'd have to be doing something really stupid you'd have to be like lighting up a crack pipe in front of a school in broad daylight or yeah. something like then like and yeah to be fair i think if you're doing that you should be arrested <laughs> yeah but yeah it's, they've stopped pursuing all kinds of lower level cases so that means that if a teenager for example is get caught smoking pot, it won't ever end up on their criminal record. What will happen is they'll get diverted to this sort of board. I think there's like three people on the board. There's like a doctor, a social worker, and, and someone else. I don't remember exactly who. And they try to kind of assess you and see if you have a drug problem. If you don't, if you're just kind of like a casual user, like, okay, like I do coke, I don't know, twice a year on my birthday and on New Year's and you just happen to get caught on New Year's, then they'll probably say, okay, yeah, fine. Be careful. Is just don't do this, this, and this. Don't, I don't, know, don't share banknotes, like basic safety advice. If you do have a problem, then what they do is they try to divert. Like They ask you if you want to be diverted to like, uh, getting help, and all the help there is free. And I think you, some companies actually get like tax cuts for employing recovering addicts so to give them more of an incentive rather than a criminal record to kind of ease them back into society. But again, even if you don't want any help, at no point you get, unless you're trafficking or, or dealing, you don't get a criminal record. And it's worked out quite well for them. I mean, I, I think it's a little bit overhyped how much success they've actually had. But what you can say is the drug use hasn't gone up. And it's also easier for those who, because what you really want is you want to reach like the hardcore addicts. Nobody really cares about some like 40-year-old guy who smokes pot in his house because he likes it. (laughs) Reach the hardcore addicts. And it's become easier for them to either get help or live with their addiction more sustainably, stably, if that makes sense. 
So in that sense, it's worked out quite well, yeah. Interesting, interesting. Well, we need to try something different here in the United States, that's for sure. And I think it's coming with this all criminal justice reform and a lot of talk about the prisons that are full of people. And so many of them have drug convictions because we had these draconian laws. Man, I tell you, it's just unbelievable. There was a kid that was just like you, Seth Ferrante. Yeah. I don't know if you've heard of him. He's done even yeah, the yeah, right in prison. Uh, you know, Seth. So, you know, Seth's got that story. He gets 25 years when he's, he's in his early 20s and he was not any kind of a criminal criminal or a hardened criminal. I bet when he first went in the federal penitentiary system, a little white boy like that from the suburbs. <laughs> yeah. was, oh, man. He, and I've talked to him before about it a little bit. I've met him a couple of times at a couple of different shows. And just, I don't know. Cool of course, guy, he's in my book as well. Oh, is he? Oh, good. So what about uh, you went down into Sinaloa, Mexico, and you, you yeah. were obviously had breakfast or dinner, was it, with the cousin of El Chapo? Tell us a little bit about that. That had to be exciting. Yeah, that was one of the strangest nights of my life, like night and morning. So what was I got in touch with like a local Mexican uh, journalist. He's like part-time filmmaker as well. So basically he uses the money that he gets from showing foreign journalists around. He takes money and he piles it into his, I think he's making vampire movies or something like Mexican vampire movies. Oh yeah, they, I, they love those horror movies down there in Mexico. They love vampires. I've been down there several times and that is a very popular genre. Yeah, yeah. And he's, we were going to go up to the mountains to El Chapo, the village where El Chapo was born, which is Le, called Latuna. But the roads there aren't very good. I'll tell you why in a, in a minute. So you really need a four by four to get through the, through the mountains. And we went around all the, all the car rental places in town. We couldn't find a single free four by four that weekend. But I remember that we'd interviewed this heroin cook earlier that week. Uh, so he makes, he takes like the stuff from the opium puppy and he turns into heroin. Mm-hmm. We remembered he was selling his pickup truck. So we just went over to his house, borrowed his pickup truck. We're driving around in this smack the US pickup truck through the mountains. It was about a four hour drive, I think, twisting and turning. Actually, I think the drive was probably the most dangerous part of the whole thing. <laughs> probably was. But, uh, and that, but in that dope dealer's pickup truck, you hope he doesn't have any enemies. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we got to the village and my guy, my friend Miguel, he sees someone he knows and he goes, yeah, hey, can you take us to Don Angue's house? And the guy was like, yeah, sure. Come on. And he took us. It's basically like, you know, I saw like an 80s action movie, kind of a drug baron's mansion, like big white agenda. Like bodyguards standing around, except instead of Miami Vice suits, they're wearing these like army camos and bandoliers over there. We just walked right past security and we just, we went to the, go, went up to the house. There's this guy, just silky white shirt and a big gold cross around his neck, just eating his dinner. And he just looks up at us like, who the hell are you guys? And I, we're like, yeah, we're looking for Don Gay. He said, yeah, I'm Don Gay. What do you want? So it turns out that was El Chapo's brother. Whereas we were looking for his cousin, who was also called Don Gale. So Don Gale's brother had no idea who we were. So we just kind of like meekly backed out of there. I guess like he probably like knew that we were coming, but like he wasn't expecting us to come to his house. Otherwise, could have been in a lot more trouble. I think that's what happened. <laughs> but then we found the other Don Gale, his cousin, who looks like kind of like a stereotypical like Mexican cowboy from an old West, big twirly mustache, like one of those big sombrero hats. He was quite cool. Hung around with him for a bit. We drove over to a nearby village to see his friends. And we drove back and it was already nightfall. And I don't know, maybe they, maybe they did it for my benefit. 
because they wanted to just mess with the gringo a little bit. When we got back, so one of the things, uh, Don Get has a sushi stand by his house. He's really into sushi. So when we got back, there was what I can describe as a Mexican cartel sushi party. There were 20 armed guys with AR-15 and Kalashnikov rifles and Glock pistols, Colt 45s, all that, just standing around eating sushi. While this like mariachi music plays in the background. <laughs> and then this other guy came up to me. He asked me what I thought about Albanians, which I thought was a strange question. But it turns out he's like a big fan of that film Taken, where Liam Neeson's daughter gets kidnapped by the Albanian mob. Yeah, we were just there talking about Liam Neeson movies over sushi with like this Mexican drug lord's cousin surrounded by all his bodyguards who are all also eating sushi. So it was very surreal. I, I, there, well, I saw in the mornings, in the morning, I saw there are all these small kind of crop duster planes flying overhead. So it turns out that the, the reason why they didn't bother maintaining the roads is to just slow down anyone who's trying to move too quickly through the valley. While all the stuff called uh, opium is being flown from the poppy fields in those small planes over to the other towns and villages where they actually make the stuff. Wow, that's uh, it's amazing. Roads are on purpose. Yeah, it is. those little details like that that they think of to keep that business running. It's uh, and then how open they are once you get there. I just saw. I was watching a. It's like a couple that were had an old van or something. They were going down through Mexico and they were out in the country and they ended up at this big kind of plantation looking place like you described and then they see yeah. two tigers in a cage out there and so as people are like think they're really cool and they're fun and kind of fun for them to have somebody from the outside and they i guess they realized they weren't some kind of undercover narcotics people because they brought them right in they finally figured out this was the, the house of some cartel boss <laughs> and they were like processing the cocaine just part of it just like right there it was amazing how open everybody was about it once you get into that world I guess because they all have massive egos as well. Yeah. That kind of, oh, they're writing a book about me, sort of. (laughs) They're making a movie about me. I think that's actually how Chapo got caught because he tried to, he thought he was meeting like Sean Penn and this Mexican actress to make a movie about himself. Yeah. And I think that, well, that's what they said, that they said the Mexican security service were tracking them. I, I think they probably knew where he was the whole time. They just used that as an excuse. Might be. And I thought, I'm reading between the lines, I thought maybe they got on one of their phones and were tracking one of their phones. They figured it heard that they were trying to meet up with him and they were tracking one of their phones, which would lead them to some details about where he might be. But a variety yeah, of those things. Do that a lot. <laughs> Maybe so, they just don't want to reveal the tactics, you know? Yeah, that's true. That's true. I was guessing. And we never like to reveal our tactics. I know that. Might work again. I had this former narcotics sergeant that worked black drugs a lot here in cocaine in the United States or Kansas City. And mm. we were talking about The Wire. Have you ever seen The Wire? Oh, yeah. It's one of my favorite shows. Yeah, in mine too. And so she was complaining about The Wire and it was real popular when she was involved in this. <laughs> and she said, man, they're giving away all of her secrets. You know, these kids out here, they don't know about cloning the pager and, and getting up on cell phones and <laughs> and all the different tactics that they used, uh, how they'd get up on roofs and look down and watch them on the street corners and try to put people together and then call in a car from outside. So, but they didn't yeah, know yeah. how that car knew what was going on and that kind of stuff. So. <laughs> that show was too real. So this has been great, Nico. Let's see, one last thing. You are, you were born in Russia. You speak Russian, I suppose? 
Yeah. So what what about the uh, the Russian mob and narcotics? Oh, that's an interesting thing. You're not going to find anyone who's like still active these days who's willing to talk about it openly in Russia. Cuz in Russia it's all very tightly controlled by the like the the Russian mob, security services are very tightly interlinked. So in the Soviet era we, there there's a sort of this outlaw prison culture called Vorivzakonia, thieves in law. They had all these kind of tattoos, and each tattoo would mean like a different thing. And they're actually very proud to be gangsters. And if you ask, they'll always admit, like they won't admit to any crimes, but they'll admit. Like, yeah. And then the like late 80s, early 90s, capitalism happened. All these guys kind of forgot about their outlaw ideals and tried to move into a legit business. Some of them did. Some of them are in government now, actually. You can look up uh, the president of Crimea now. His nickname used to be Goblin back in the 90s. He had one or two assassination attempts on him as well. Um, there, the, in terms of narcotics, yeah, it used to be like the Russian army or like elements in the Russian army themselves were flying heroin over from Tajikistan, which is a country right next to Afghanistan, which is obviously where like 80% of heroin comes from around the world. They're flying the heroin pretty much from across the Afghan border on the military planes to Moscow. It doesn't happen so much these days. The main thing these days with narcotics is everything has gone online. So it's all on the dark web now. And one funny thing about dark web is, you know, like I've never ordered on the dark web in K or anywhere in the West. Uh, but I have friends who have, and like it just goes to their houses. You get delivered in the mail. In Russia... Like, you can get anything you want and deliver in the mail, like speed, ecstasy, weed, whatever. In Russia, our mails, our post system sucks. Um, if you live in a big apartment block like most Russians, like, the postman's too lazy to go all the way up the stairs, hand over everyone the package. So if you have anything that doesn't fit through your door, uh, you have to go and sign for it. No one's going to go and sign for a half a kilo of ganja. So what happens instead is what you send them the money online, and they send you the location. They send you like the Google Maps coordinates and they send you little photographs with like little red arrows pointed like where you have to go. So you could go to a, usually like a park or a forest or like an old warehouse or something. And they'll be like, yeah, it'll be under like the third trash bin under on your left or something like that. Easter egg hunt. But now what, what's happened basically with drugs in, in Moscow is that at any given point, there's always like a bunch of teenagers rummaging around the bushes somewhere. And obviously like the police know what's up as well. And that's created quite a lucrative sideline for them in on-the-spot fines, as it were, because police corruption is a big problem in Russia as well. Interesting. Well, Nico, this has been great. This is uh, kind of a little trip around the world, and, and you kind of bring us, brought us up to date on what's going on in the narcotics business. It's, uh, I know that there's a lot coming out of the dark web, but they still got, sure, they still got the corner boys, as they used to call them, the street corner guys with the crack and heroin houses, the shooting galleries and all that. I would imagine they still have that up kind of. That was what was popular when I was doing the deal, and I would imagine that's still nostalgia. out there. <laughs> nostalgia, really. <laughs> so I appreciate it. And we'll have to have you come back and do something else about God, you got like 30 some chapters in your book. 
dope world, the marijuana ban in the 30s and the trip to Morocco. We can go all the way back to how we even got the, the Harrison Act in the United States and talk about narcotics a little bit more because it's so topical, and yeah. especially in light of what's going on between law enforcement and relations between black folks and white folks in the United States and, yeah, and this yeah. narcotics business. I mean, I worked it and during the crack cocaine, it was truly an epidemic in the yeah, 80s. Yeah. It was unbelievable. It just was destroying neighborhoods and the good people in the neighborhoods were, were begging us for help and we threw all of our energy into it. We had a lot of money from the government to throw at it and we started putting people in jail and now you got all these people with these criminal felony convictions that maybe should have just been put into treatment. I got yeah, a feeling yeah. that a lot of them should have just been put in some kind of narcotics treatment and started providing tools for job skills and things like that. But Hindsight's always twenty twenty, so it's the narcotics business is, is always topical and even more so today, if you ask me. So would you come back one of these days and we'll do a couple more chapters out of your book? Yeah, it'll be a pleasure, yeah. All right, that'll be great. It's really been nice talking to you, Nico. All right, thank you very much. Right. Have a good day, Gary. Okay, bye. If you're a veteran and you believe you have problems that might be from PTSD that's connected to your service time, call your local vet center or the local VA hospital in your area, or there's a national hotline, 1-800-273-8255, and press 1 if you're a vet. You can go to www.ptsd.va.gov, and this site contains a lot of interesting information and a lot of good resources. When the COVID's over, as we say, when the COVID-19 virus is over and everybody's getting back to work, you can hit me up for a cup of coffee or a shot and a beer on my Venmo app, Gangland Wire. I've got my two movies out there, Brothers Against Brothers, The Savella Spiro War, and Gangland Wire, which is the kind of the story behind the movie Casino, the story about the mob war in Kansas City that led to the uncovering of the skimming information. Got Leaving Vegas, How FBI Wiretaps Ended Mob Domination of Las Vegas Casinos. Get the Kindle version. You can link. I've linked the wiretaps, actual audio from wiretaps to sections in the book. Good evening, folks. Music provided by our good friend and super fan from Portland, Oregon, Casey McBride. Thanks, Casey.